So good to be able to be in a position we're in tonight, to come together, to sing praise as we've done, to pray collectively unto the God of heaven, and to appreciate as well an opportunity to reflect yet again on a section, a portion of the Word of God. As often as we come together, we never tire of the sacred scriptures, do we? They really are the guide to our life. They're the basic foundation upon which we can build and recognize that what is asserted based on that is guaranteed to be right. Tonight, as you've already noticed, no doubt, either in the bulletin or on the wall to my left, we're going to give some appreciation to a subject that's often a bit of a challenge, at least for many in our world, but our approach will be a study of capital punishment. We'll do that using many passages, odd, amazingly enough, in the Old Testament. But there was a lesson text read just a few moments ago in the very New Testament itself. These introductory remarks will prompt our study tonight, so would you consider them with me for a few moments? It wouldn't it be easy to say that there are certain behaviors of the human family, behaviors that themselves are regarded as good and noble, Behaviors that really are so uplifting that they would be very appropriate to imitate. Behaviors, quite frankly, that are kind and very positive and beneficial and helpful in so many ways. But on the other hand, there are choices that individuals can make such that behaviors that follow from those choices can quite frankly be described like this. They are hurtful to the individual, him or herself. They, quite frankly, can be very devastating to others. They're widely regarded in some cases as rather heinous and atrocious. To say all of that is to say the choice is there for the human family, each and every one of us, to make choices for activities falling in one or the other of them. The human family even realizes that some of those in that latter category are worthy of very severe punishment. Sometimes those punishments vary widely in the reality of them. For example, stealing. You can go and take something that belongs to somebody else and, if caught, of course, hauled into the courts of our land, you might well be convicted of something for which imprisonment might result. Same thing's true, quite frankly, even of third-degree murder. You can take life, but it falls in the category of third-degree you can be hauled into prison for it. But look at the next line. If you're convicted of first-degree murder, you might well be sentenced to death. Your life might be taken from you. It may well be regarded that this activity in which you've engaged is sufficiently destructive that even the law of the land will openly approve the taking of your life. To say all of that, let's come to the bottom of the slide. What about then capital punishment? What does the Bible teach about it? You and I, of course, in the particulars of our day, would certainly be interested to know anything that God has to say on any subject. And I hope true that that will be true concerning our study of the evening. This next slide will take us back to the days of the Old Testament. I'd like to ask for just a moment, if you and I were to reconsider the law of Moses for just a minute... And I ask beneath that law of Moses, you and I remember well that God gave that set of laws to the children of Israel and not only did it have religious statutes within it, it also made assertions and even demands relative to civil behavior. Look at some of these items, would you? 
there were various and sundry crimes beneath the law of Moses, which God not only suggested that punishment by death were possible, He even mandated it. In other words, the God of heaven dictated, even required, that there were certain crimes for which capital punishment was the punishment that was to be selected. Note the first one, murder. There are several passages in the Old Testament. Perhaps Leviticus 24, 17 is as clear as any of them. He that killeth any man shall surely be put to death. That's about as straightforward and unambiguous as any passage in the entirety of the Old Testament. Anybody that was guilty of murder, the punishment set forth by the God of heaven for that one who in fact did such was in fact death. You and I remember that in fact among the Ten Commandments, God had said on that occasion, Thou shalt not kill. And in that, as you and I discussed it, we know that He in fact described the process of murder but he didn't place the punishment in the Ten Commandments. But he did place it here. In Exodus chapter 21, verse number 12, one more time, as God reiterated those laws that he had given on Sinai, wasn't it true there that one more time he was to be put to death? Perhaps finally you'll notice in Numbers 35, 16, here, as the children of Israel were in fact rather close to entering into the promised land, yet again there was a final reminder that those who would take human life, it was the case that they too were to forfeit their lives. The very last verse I would ask you to consider on that particular set of passages takes us back really to even long before the law of Moses was ever given. This attribute on the part of God to consider capital punishment didn't just begin with the law of Moses. In fact, God told it to the descendants of Noah. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, as Noah and his family came off the ark, it was even told to them. And isn't it true that they certainly were no murderers? But God had said that the one who takes human life, he's to lose his own life. That was apparently a premise, a principle that was to be widely understood and regarded even in the developments of human society. You'll notice again, murder was the one we could readily appreciate, and there was a clear reason set forward. That reason had to do with what human beings are. They're made in the image of God. And as such, the God of heaven has instilled within them a spirit, an immortal spirit, to take the human life is to take away the potential and the possibility that that spirit may have allowed them to consider. But what's more, it takes the opportunity of that person to make any response to the gospel in a positive way. And if they die lost, we all know what happens. There's no longer a possibility for them to be made right with God. Murder was punishable by death, but it wasn't the only crime. Look at the next one. This one, I suppose, may be perhaps more challenging for many in our day. Consider the wording of Exodus 21, verse 15. As that law of Moses was set forward, God again in very specific terms and tones declared that that child who would curse or smite parents was to be put to death. Any daughter, any son that would speak to his or her parents in a way that involved cursing, 
in a way that involved the kind of activity under discussion there to curse or to smite. God, again, was very clear, put that child to death. Causes one to think twice, doesn't it? God didn't tolerate beneath that law of Moses a child growing up in an environment by which he didn't understand the essence of authority. That was not to be tolerated. So far as we've looked at those two, it just whets our appetite, I'm sure, for the remainder of the list. Let's consider number three. What about those circumstances in which a child merely showed contempt to his parents? And that is, that is to say, father or mother has perhaps made certain statements of demand, and the child maybe didn't overtly curse, but showed contempt to what dad and mom had asserted. Look at the wording of Leviticus 20 verse 9 or Exodus 21 17. In either case, God on this occasion too affirmed that child was to be put to death. At this point, we might easily notice then that the behavior in these instances of a child was placed in the same category as far as punishment as was the murderer. Look at number 4. Also on the same slide, drawn from Exodus 21, 16. That person who was guilty of kidnapping, the King James Version uses a men-stealer. So you go and you forcefully take somebody against his or her will. God said that person who had perpetrated that act, put that person to death. One by one, we're already gaining a rather rich appreciation that amongst the children of Israel, there was to be a high regard for those things that God dictated were worthy of respect. Parents were worthy of respect. The belongings of another, including another's person, were worthy of great respect. Human life was worthy of great respect. As you can well tell in the discussion of this one, kidnapping. Think about the ancient societies involving slaves and other matters like that, and what would this have said about that? Although certain ancient societies looked upon certain of human life in a rather undignified fashion, perhaps even rather condescendingly, still you do not go and steal somebody. Look at the next one. What about the owner of an animal that himself was careless? Maybe you have an ox or you have some other animal capable of great strength, obviously, and you knew the animal was want to be a bit unruly, but you don't keep the fences up and you allow that animal to get out because of your own laziness or slothfulness or otherwise. That animal ends up killing somebody. That animal ends up, in fact, perhaps doing great harm or damage to individuals or to property that belongs to someone else. Guess what God had to say about it? In Exodus 21, verse number 29, if that animal killed somebody else... Not only was the animal to be put to death, but its owner was as well. Now, isn't that interesting? Here was a circumstance in ancient history where there was to be a high regard for the property of others to the extent that one safeguarded his own animals and his own matters such that it never infringed upon them. That's a very telling consideration, isn't it? Doesn't it make one think twice? It certainly would encourage the keeping of one's fences, if you please, or the chains or ropes with which animals were tied. You would never want that animal in its dangerous nature to get loose and then to wreak havoc. 
the very last one on that slide. The matter of sodomy. I would point you to Exodus twenty-two nineteen as well as Leviticus 20, verses 15 and following. In each of these instances, as God rather clearly specified, those who would be guilty of this. And on this occasion, may I rather limit it to say this. That opening passage of that group had dictated that the one who would lie with a beast, that person who would choose sexual relations with an animal, put that human being to death. We also learned there was to be a high and greatly respected safeguard concerning the attitude concerning sexuality. You and I know that the human family for many decades now has had a number of issues and problems with matters like this one. But here God had specified it rather clearly. In Israel, you see, there was to be understood that that individual who would proceed to this extent, who would make that choice, notice with me if you would, it didn't matter what perspective the person thought. Maybe the person would say, but it's my choice and it's my lifestyle, and what do you have to say about it? But those who had a regard for the Word of God would say, God has specified, and it's not your choice. And thus, they would take that person outside the camp. At the mouth of a few witnesses, that person would be put to death. Because God had dictated it. As you and I have looked at the listing on that slide, we can begin to see that there were a number of behaviors, conducts, if you will, for which the God of heaven dictated the punishment. Let's turn the page to the next slide. With those having been considered, look at those that now appear on this slide. Our list isn't completed, you see. At the top of the slide, what about those who, in fact, defile the Sabbath? Here were individuals who had taken no life. They had not had animals that had gotten loose or free. They had not engaged in sodomy. They hadn't engaged in those other crimes that you and I had just described a moment ago, such as kidnapping or otherwise. All they had done was fail to have high regard for and to keep the matter of the Sabbath. And yet, in Exodus 31, 14 as well as Exodus 35, 2. God says, put that man to death. Now, as you and I perhaps wrestle with the consideration of that in our mind, isn't it remarkable then the high degree to which God called Israel to understand the Sabbath? When He said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, He meant what He said, and He said what He meant. I'm sure there are many in that ancient day who may well have thought, surely this isn't punishable by death. I merely worked on the Sabbath. Is that such a crime? And God says, yes. I merely conducted some commerce that day. I chose to buy and sell a little bit. Is that such a crime? God says, yes. Among other things, doesn't it help us appreciate that God's perspective is always what's important? If he says something is right, then that makes it right, no matter how man feels. But if he says that something is wrong, one more time, it doesn't matter how man may feel about it. That makes it wrong. Look at the next item on the list. What about those individuals who had gone to the point of being so confused, so mistaken, and so misled that they actually 
allowed their children to be offered as sacrifices to idols. When you and I turn the page to Leviticus 20, verse number 2, those guilty of that, God says, the parents are worthy to die. The parents are the ones who, in the matter of the moment, have so misconstrued the nature of the God of heaven and have so sidestepped the truth of God that they, the parents, are the ones that should be put to death. Look at the next element on the list. Adultery. I'm sure as we've come to this one, we know well what the ancient society so often practiced and considered, but we know just as well what modern society does. It seems to be no great matter at all for a man to step out on his wife, for a woman to step out on her husband, to have a little mistress on the side, if you please. And yet God said in the ancient terror, this is a sin, and not just a sin. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, that man who's been caught in adultery and the woman as well, put both of them to death. Put both of them to death. The wording of Leviticus 20, verses 10, 11, and 12 all highlight that, but it's reiterated in Deuteronomy 22. All of it sets before us the interesting purview that comes with God's perspective on these human choices. On that occasion when that man and woman take the marriage vow, they've pledged to be faithful to one another till death. And when a man breaks his vow that way, or when the woman breaks her vow, put them to death. Have you ever wondered if God had brought over those sentiments into the New Testament, how much different things would be? Have you ever thought about if He in the New Testament had asserted that child that curses or smites his parents, put them to death? That man or woman guilty of adultery, put them to death. I suspect that at least initially there had been a lot of killing. But over time, no doubt, a lot of people would have learned better. And a lot of changes in behavior would have taken place. Look at the next one. Homosexuality. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse number 13. You probably already noticed Leviticus 20 is mentioned a number of times amongst this list. And in that chapter we see a number of references in which God had determined that certain behaviors were punishable by death under that old era and that old law. Homosexuality, it's not a new behavior. It has been around at least since the days of Genesis 19. There were people in ancient Sodom guilty of it. We don't know how much before that. But the fact is, it isn't new. People are still doing it, though. But it does give us a grand understanding, doesn't it, that this choice that human beings make is on par with murder and these others we've described, and it's not healthy. It isn't. And it's not just a choice in life. It is a behavior that's hurtful to oneself. It's hurtful to the overall character of society. And God said, those guilty of this... Put them to death. Now again, that was in the law of Moses. Let's make sure we understand that. But it does help us see, doesn't it, that it was in a list with these other behaviors that were deemed by the God of heaven unhealthy for the human family. It's at this point we ought to notice. God gave His ordinances and His statutes and the commandments that He did for the well-being of mankind. This is for the well-being of people. Homosexuality was wrong then. 
and it still is. You and I know we live beneath a different law, and we're going to discuss a bit later in the lesson at least, the purview of capital punishment in this present era. But let's close our list by noting this. What about those who were witches? Those who had familiar spirits, as the Old Testament would call it. Those who, in fact, claimed to be able to talk to the dead. And those who, in fact, dealt in those kinds of matters. God said, put that man to death. You don't tolerate witches in ancient Israel. That, of course, is going to play an interesting role later in the Old Testament when we get to the days of Saul. But at least for now, might you and I notice one more time, something was very clearly stated by God. Look at the next one with me. What about those who would blaspheme God? As you and I come to Leviticus 24, 16, another rather specific statement was made. That person who would revile or blaspheme God, put that person to death. I wonder how carefully that would imply one would use and make respectful approach to God. You'd never use God's name carelessly for somebody nearby may say, I heard him defile the name of God and you may soon lose your life for it. To blaspheme or revile the name of God was a serious crime. The next one on the list. Consider this one. We each remember how special the furniture elements in the, in, in, the, in the tabernacle were. What if someone carelessly touched the Ark of the Covenant? What if you just rather matter-of-factly, maybe with no ill will whatsoever, but you touched that Ark? God said something rather specific in Exodus 19, Numbers chapter 1, Numbers chapter 3, and Numbers chapter 18. Anybody unauthorized who touched one of those sacred elements put that person to death. Now, did God take matters seriously? I feel rather sure in saying the human family by and large would say, but that's not worthy of death. That kind of behavior could maybe be accidental. Uzzah touched that ark, you know, over in 1 Chronicles 13. We all know what happened to him too, don't we? One more time, here was an issue rather clearly stated by God, and on those occasions when David or others chose not to honor it, that wasn't God's fault. One final thing. What about a prophet? A person who claimed to have prophetical capability, a prophet that in some way encouraged the people to follow false gods. God said something rather specific in Deuteronomy. He said, put that prophet to death. Among other things, it seems to me that that list, and that closes my list admittedly, but it seems to me that list highlights the careful and high regard that the people were to have had for all the things that God said were to be respected. And it included life, the marriage relation, the honor that goes with other people, it certainly had a high regard for the things sacred like the tabernacle and like the Sabbath. God in all those instances set before the people some rather strong statements. As you and I turn the slide and come to the next point, it would seem to me we could at least summarize it like this. As you and I give careful thought to the Old Testament, God commanded capital punishment. He didn't leave it as optional. For those 14 crimes that I just listed, he commanded capital punishment. 
that person had chosen to behave in such a way that he had forfeited his right to live on this planet. Isn't that an overwhelming statement? Isn't that a compelling consideration? That a human being can make choices and by those choices to forfeit your right to live here. Off into eternity you ought to go. You are in fact no benefit to the overall class of society. The kind of behavior that you have chosen to do is so hurtful and so demeaning that you don't want others to have that as an, as, as an example, and you want to sufficiently deter that behavior that your life is to be taken. I would ask that as you and I think about all those things, God expected His people to carry out these sentences. After all, we have a number of examples in the Old Testament that bring us to that second point. I would mention to you this one. We have a clear-cut case in Numbers 15, don't we? There was a man who had been found gathering sticks on the Sabbath. What had he done? He hadn't committed murder. He hadn't been a men-stealer. He hadn't committed adultery as far as we know. His only crime, he had not honored the Sabbath. But the fact is, God had already by that time said that those who in fact had violated that Sabbath put that man to death. Moses was in a bit of a question. Even he didn't understand exactly what was to be done, but God said, I said what I meant, and I meant what I said. Put that man to death. And they did. Do you suppose Israel learned a valiant lesson that day? The Sabbath is to be regarded. Maybe there had been men in, the, in ancient Israel at that time who already had it crossed their mind. Is it really so important? I believe I could get a little work done this day. Is it really such a big deal? I'm sure from a distance as they saw rocks being hurled at that man and his life being taken, I'm sure it reiterated in their heart and mind, it is important. If only there was a keen appreciation in the human family, not only in that ancient era, but this one too, for respect for what God says should be respected. And so point number three is this. Capital punishment was scriptural under the law of Moses, and also under the patriarchal law. God not only made suggestion of it, He commanded it. You and I, of course, don't live under either one of those arrangements. We live under the Christian era. Why don't we then come to that one today? Let's use the remainder of our time tonight, the few moments we've got, to reflect on that text in Romans 13. As we come to our modern day, what about capital punishment? I'd submit to you that we might well begin it by some of these initial statements. We live today, of course, beneath this Christian era. The blood of Jesus Christ and the cross, that old law was nailed to it, of course. We don't live beneath that law of Moses, nor do we live beneath the patriarchal one either. We live beneath this better covenant this sweet covenant of Jesus Christ. With that in mind, there are some rather great principles, of course, that will help us correctly consider this issue this evening. Although we heard it read earlier, may I cast a spotlight on Romans 13. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. 
And at this point, it's easy to see then that there's a reference to powers. But the Bible talks about many kinds of powers. There are powers in heaven, Ephesians 6 verse 10. There are powers and principalities in various and sundry places. What powers is Paul talking about? He leaves us not to wonder. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation for rulers. The powers that Paul is describing are civil authorities. Rulers, if you please. Those civil magistrates and those policemen and those who in fact carry governmental authority in that regard. He says, rulers are not a terror to good works but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he, and notice that he is referring to those powers, those rulers, he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Reference to powers. Might we initially note this in verse number 1. Those powers, he says, are ordained of God. As you and I open and study the Word of God, we appreciate that there are certain grand occurrences in human society, like marriage, but God authored it, and the existence of civil authorities like governments. That's perfectly consistent with the will of God. In fact, didn't Jesus even say in Matthew 22, whose, whose image and superscription is on it? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Matthew 22, verses 20 and following. Isn't it true then that here the Son of God endorsed the right of governments to exist? He endorsed the reality of them and said it's fully consistent with the will of heaven. And in this passage, Paul, remember, spoke in a day when the government wasn't very kind to Christians. As far as we can tell, when the Roman letter was written, the dating would place it, Nero was already on the throne in Rome. A very despicable man in many ways. And yet, even then, Paul did not say, you, in fact, make sure you encourage insurrections. You make sure that you encourage uprisings and you assassinate him if you can. Paul never said that. He said the powers that be are ordained of God. That even included Nero. Now, I'm not saying that God, in fact, endorsed everything Nero did, but he endorsed the right of men like Nero to govern, or rather those in position of Nero. That rulership, that emperorship... They had the right to exist. Isn't it true in light of those things that you and I can make some final statements about this business of capital punishment because we just read it? Verse number 4 again reads, If thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. One doesn't use a sword except to plunge to the hilt and to, of course, take life at a context like this one. If the civil authorities then have laws such that certain crimes are punishable by death, the authorities have the right to take life. 
they have the right to carry out those sentences and they have the right to, in fact, execute that judgment. God says they do. Now, you and I will quickly notice that a listing of the crimes like what we studied in the Old Testament isn't found in the New. We don't have those laws from God that says if a man commits adultery or murder or, in fact, if he commits men-stealing, kidnapping, or otherwise. It's admittedly true. Those verses are not in the New Testament. But if the civil authorities were to make a law that said a man guilty of adultery was to be put to death, they would have the right to carry out that sentence. If the civil authorities enacted a law whereby if a man was guilty of men stealing, then that man was to be put to death, they would have the right to carry out that sentence. Isn't it interesting as you and I make some of these comments? Doesn't it highlight in us how God looks upon civil order? You and I are urged to pray, are we not? In 1 Timothy 2 verse 1, Pray in regard to kings and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. May I submit to you, none of us would want to live in a place where there was anarchy. That would be almost unimaginably horrible. When everybody does what's right in their own eyes, that would be in fact atrocious. It'd be awful. God recognizes the right of governments to exist. And He says even those governments have the right to take life. You and I then are urged to respect the government. He said here, did He not let every soul be subject to the higher powers? The best citizens, of course, should be the ones who are Christians. For we not only honor God... We, of course, also honor the civil authority so long as it does not contradict the law of God. For we ought to obey God rather than men, to borrow Peter's words of Acts 5.29. As you and I come to the close of that slide, isn't it interesting then to have been reminded of just how sweetly and also so clearly God looked upon crimes were punishable by death in the Old Testament. But we've learned today... He still endorses the right to take life when the civil authorities do it in that way. As we close this lesson this evening, having been reminded of some of those things, let's close this slide, this particular lesson with that slide. Highlighting in it some renewed appreciation and disposition concerning these matters. The Bible does prove what we've described as capital punishment. May you and I highlight the government's right to carry out those things and civil authorities for the case. And I would even assert that when those things are on the books, Ecclesiastes 8 verse number 9 says, it's not good to delay execution. When you tarry over so long, it's not a wise thing. Take care of it quickly. Isn't it true? Sometimes our land and its system of jurisprudence has its issues to be sure. But may we at least regard the fact and hope for those judges and those individuals who would be respectful of the matters we've studied this evening. Tonight, as I stand before you, maybe there's someone in the audience who's not a Christian, not a faithful Christian. Maybe you've recognized so often that choices and that others have made, and you recognize that they're not good, and you want to live rightly. You want to live 
consistent with the Word of God. The plan of salvation is pretty simple. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. And if we could help you tonight to accomplish those things, we'd be delighted. If you have become a Christian, though, and maybe you have for some time known the faithfulness that went with it, but as of tonight, you know all isn't well. Maybe your faith has been shaken. Things have happened in life and you brought you to the brink and maybe you haven't handled them in a way that you know you wish you had. Maybe you just need the prayers of strength and encouragement. We'd be delighted to pray for you. If it is sins known publicly, though, and you'd wish to repent of them and confess them, we'd be happy to pray to God for you. If tonight we could be of help to anyone in these regards, why don't you come while together we stand and sing?